0: Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things, friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. I will not be the only pastor uh, in the Church of the Nazarene to start a sermon with some words from the manual i don't always do that i don't know if you know me very well but i don't always start my sermons by reading from the manual of the church of the nazarene but but this is worth hearing today um, we lament the legacy of every form of racism throughout the world and we seek to confront that legacy through repentance reconciliation and biblical justice we seek to repent of every behavior in which we have been overtly or covertly complicit with the sin of racism, both past and present. And in confession and lament, we seek forgiveness and reconciliation. I am proud uh, I am proud of that statement of belief. Uh, I wrote something else today. There are a lot of sermons wrecked (laughs) by the goings-on the last couple of weeks. I don't think ours necessarily is because of the the passage. And and so uh, I wanted to make sure, and forgive me, um, I have a very dear friend that's here today who gave me some great advice years ago. And the, the advice went something like this. Dude, stop reading your sermons to us. (laughs) And it was really good. I am going to read this part to make sure I don't leave anything out. But I want you to, having heard from the denomination, I want you to hear from me. Um, I want you to hear from me. The Gospel of Matthew was written to a frightened and battered church that was being threatened on all sides. A young still finding its legs church that had suffered another catastrophic, deadly, deathly event in the loss of the temple and the murder of the priesthood. A church terrified, terrorized, scrambling for hope. A church intimidated by its fears, intoxicated by power, tempted to give up or give in and go along. Sounds like today. Deathly situations dog us. The most deadly, or deathly if you prefer, is playing out on our screens and in our Twitter feeds, in the stories above the fold on newspapers across the country. If you've been paying attention, you've seen the nightmare playing out in Charlottesville, Virginia. Claiming their First Amendment rights, the voices of hate, bigotry, and discrimination gathered to make their voices heard. An angry and emboldened group of Klan members, neo-Nazis, and white supremacists gathered to shake their fists at a changing world and threaten violence if their demands weren't met. They were armed with shields and weapons. They were ready to fight and even bleed for their cause. Some claim the backing of God in Scripture for this particular cause. I'm not going to spend much time or oxygen on that one. There's nothing of Christ in the message of hatred and bigotry, nothing, period, end of story. What concerns me more, where the church and Christians are concerned, is what happens next. What will Christians do or say now? How will the church respond to a rising tide of hatred? Whatever we do, we cannot be silent. Silence in these moments has catastrophic consequences. History remembers how the church has responded through the years when similar situations have erupted into the past. I was in the room. In South Africa, when Christian leaders from around the world, when black pastors asked why the church was silent during apartheid, and the silence, to be honest, is still deafening. I've read, and I'm sure many of you have as well, the stories of the church's inadequate, largely silent, responses to the Third Reich. Certainly, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the exception to that rule. History remembers when Christians, when the church is silent, May it not be so this time. When we are silent, when we don't make good use of the voice God has given us, each of us and all of us, people are moved to the margins, robbed of their humanity and dignity and brutalized every single time. Evil is empowered and emboldened. We lose our moral authority and lose the capacity, hear this, we lose the capacity to faithfully embody or retell the gospel story to our children. And we suffer self-inflicted amnesia, mortally wounding our sense of corporate identity as the people of God. In other words, if now we are silent, we are complicit. Christians, church, okay, pause. You know I love you. If you don't know I love you, you're not paying attention. If you need me to tell you that I love you, come see me after church. Okay? Please don't hide behind your conflict allergies. Please don't let anyone tell you that this is a political matter that's better left to the halls of power. Please don't be sorry or angry or disappointed or disenchanted when your pastor, your church, or your denomination decide to give voice to the gospel. There is a time and place for silence in the life of the Christian. When listening for the whispering voice of God, it's best to be silent. (laughs) So that you can know when and where to speak up and speak out and push back. In other words, may we fix our eyes on Jesus who craved silence and communion with God. Jesus' life and ministry should be instructive for us, but it's not as simple as what would Jesus do, though that's not a bad place to start. But it is more dangerous than that. It's how am I being shaped toward Christ likeness, not just in my actions, but in my innermost being. How am I recovering the image of God in whose image I have been created? How am I growing the capacity to say along with Paul, it is no longer I but Christ who lives in me? Here's where it can get pretty dangerous and exciting and impactful. As I am remade, as I intentionally blur the lines between me and Jesus, I'll find myself aching for silence so that I can discern God's whispering voice. I'll find myself looking around and seeing as Christ sees. I'll find myself moved with compassion, my heart pounding when and where Christ's heart pounds. I'll find myself bothered, angry, and maybe even enraged at the very times Christ is all of the above. I'll find the strength to knock over tables in the temple and be a nuisance to the status quo. I'll find my voice and say what God wants to be said, words of love and grace, words of compassion and empathy, words of conviction, words of rebuke, words of truth, no matter the audience, even when the audience is the church. I'll find my voice in that moment is Christ's voice in me. Faithful God, we are listening. Forgive us. We confess that we have the capacity to be loud when we should be silent and silent when we should be loud. But you have created us with the capacity to sing and pray and shout and have voice. Help your church that gathers at 4400 Northwest Expressway. Help us to find our gathered up voice and help each of us to find our individual voices and give us the words to speak out and against violence, hatred, bigotry, injustice, and silence ill-timed. Give us the capacity in righteousness and holiness and in self-emptying suffering love to call our Christian brothers and sisters to action in the hopes that our voices would be gathered into an irrepressible, unmistakable choir big and strong enough to sing your praises, big and strong enough to shield the vulnerable, big and strong enough to challenge the powers of evil, big and strong enough to restore life and order and rhythm and hope to your entire creation. And may it start today with us, with me. Um... Christianity is an odd way to be alive, isn't it? It's an odd way to be alive. Christianity, in that we understand it to be the body of Christ living as Christ in the world, should be as odd as Jesus I didn't get enough amens there. (laughs) Christianity, you can hear it in the word, right? Christianity intends to communicate that we intend to be Christ, the body of Christ, the tangible, touchable presence of Christ and the movement of the kingdom in the world, which means, hear me, necessarily, it means, it will. At some point in your life, if Christianity hasn't put you in an odd, awkward situation, you perhaps aren't doing it right. I'm not saying every moment has to be odd or awkward. I'm not, not saying that at all, right? But there are times when Christians are out and out weird, you know, like, like Jesus. It was weird when Jesus said some of the things that Jesus said confronting power. It was weird when Jesus aligned himself with some of the people that Jesus aligned himself with. It was weird and decidedly unpopular when Jesus took a stance and intended to be the truth that spoke to power. It was costly. Jesus knew it was costly, and Jesus did it anyway, knowing it was costly. Consequently, it was even more weird. Just briefly, let's talk through this this passage of Scripture today because I think this passage, like so many of the others around this passage, have to do with how odd and how hard it is to be Christian. Hear me. Hear me. I, I appreciate how hard it is to be Christian. Can I tell you something? Sometimes it's hard to be Christian and a pastor. Sometimes. I mean, you can feel it. We read a book over the summer called Reviving Old Scratch, trying to figure out where is evil in the world out there, and we've kept using this word zeitgeist, like sort of the spirit of the air is how I, I heard it from Dr. Green. The spirit of the air, sometimes is so powerful, so powerful, that it pushes you around and intimidates some days and then intoxicates other days, and it is really hard to be weird in this culture, even as a pastor. I can't imagine what it's like for a teacher. I can't imagine what it's like for somebody in business, In law, in medicine, I can't imagine what it's like to be a normal person in the world. When you're trying to follow the call of God. When you're trying to follow so closely behind this Jesus character, remember we've said this and I love this. You try to follow so closely behind this Jesus character that the dust of his sandals gets all over your clothes. It will be interesting to see over the next few weeks and months, because this, this is, won't be the last time we hear this particular story play out. It'll be interesting to see how much over the next few weeks and months, how often Christianity is still understood to be more about Jesus than about us. When it's about us, then my priority becomes Safety and security and don't rock the boat and by the way, stay in the boat. If it's more about me, if it's more about us, that Christianity, which by the way is flourishing, the Christianity that's more about me and more about us and and sort of uh, idolizes, institutionalizes and canonizes security. And the the public's definition of success, right? When that Christianity rules the day and rules my life, people are going to get hurt. The people on the margins are going to get hurt. But when Christianity is more about Jesus than it is about you, As you inch closer to this very dangerous place where you might be able to say along with Paul, it is no longer I but Christ who lives in me. When you get to that point, Christianity is in fact dangerous for you, for me, for us. May it be so. In these couple of chapters, 13 and 14, you have examples of good faith, but you have plenty, in fact, more examples of bad faith, even in the parables. Remember the parable of the sower? Only a quarter of that seed actually results in great faith. More of it, I'm not going to say it's wasted because I don't believe that. It's not wasted. It just doesn't actually come to fruition like God dreams for it to come to fruition. And there's a lot of reasons for that as we jump in today's passage of scripture. Perhaps it's because there are wind and waves. Wind and waves. There there are intimidating, intimidating issues in our lives. And it's not just what's playing out on the screens, right? It's all the other things too that come at us like wind and waves. And we have some idea. We have some idea of what the disciples must have been facing. Some idea of what that fear, that terror must have been like, the wind and the waves, the wind and the waves. Can we be honest about something? The disciples, and it's more explicit in Mark, but you can still kind of see it here in Matthew, the disciples don't yet get it. Chronically human, chronically normal disciples. And all God's people said, whew, what we should have said, right? Because it means that we still have time. But they don't get it. Remember, after the death of John, last week we said this, all these people come out to Jesus, the disciples as well, and it's almost like they are waiting for him to organize them into a violent rebellion, and he doesn't. You remember what he does? He throws a picnic. They don't get it. They don't get it. They still don't get it at the beginning of this passage, and so Jesus says, okay, I need you to get out. He sends the disciples. In fact, the word in the, in the original language is he orders them, get out. Get in the boat. Go back shore. I'll deal with the crowds. Just Go. Looks like they did not make it all the way across, though, because of the wind and the waves. Now, now let's, let's, let's say this. It is obvious, and we have said this often, that this book of Matthew was written for this fledgling church. These things weren't written down the same time that they all happened. They were written down uh, decades later so that the church could learn something, could learn something about God, could learn something about being the church. The church is learning something as it reads this this story about the disciples who couldn't get all the way back to shore. There was a lot of symbolic meaning in here, and we're not going to get into all of it. We're going to get into this much of it before we close. They were not able to get back to the boat, buffeted as they were by the wind and the waves. And we understand this. The wind and the waves are still buffeting the church. They're still bouncing us around. The wind and the zeitgeist. The wind of the age is still pushing us around. You have things that are pushing you around in your individual life. Maybe those things are fear of bankruptcy, bankruptcy, loss of a job, cancer, wayward family members. There's a lot of different things. Doubt, perhaps, is beating your boat up. (laughs) What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? When the boat... Is pushed around by the wind and the waves. So Jesus looks up and recognizes that they haven't gotten all the way home yet. And so somewhere around 3, maybe 6 in the morning, but it was still dark, Jesus goes tromping out on the water. It was actually on the sea, on the sea. He goes walking out to them. Now, they believed that all things evil lurch just beneath the surface or right there in the water. And so when they see Jesus from a long way off, it's pretty dark. They did not recognize him as Jesus. They recognized him as the ghost that was going to completely finish them off. And so according to Scripture, they squawked in fear. In other words, they lost all sense of dignity and screamed like little bitty kids. And Jesus said, and this is the key, look at Guys, if you take nothing else home with you, take this home with you. Jesus said to people in a boat being beaten up by wind and waves, Jesus says, Look at me. Right here, look at me. Look at me. Simon Peter doesn't say, Lord, if it's you, tell me to get out of the boat. Simon Peter actually says, Lord, since it's you, Lord, because it's you, I bet I can get out of this boat, right? Tell me to do it. Tell me to do it. Tell me to do it. And Jesus said, um, oh, all right, I don't, not really, I'm not going to grade you on whether or not you can walk on top of the sea. Notice that Simon Peter never again gets better at walking on the sea. Notice that the apostle Paul, though shipwrecked, did not walk on the water. But Jesus says, okay, uh, come on. And you remember what the story says, right? Simon Peter gets out, and here's the thing: has a couple of steps in him. Wow. And then he becomes more aware of the zeitgeist, becomes more aware of the wind and the waves than of Christ's face. And he sinks. Now, here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. Christ <laughs> rescues Peter. Lord, save me! Absolutely. And he does call him a name. Here's the name, Mister Little Faith. But the underlying point to be made here. It's clear, clear, clear. Storms, wind, waves, you've seen the bumper sticker, stuff happens. You will have storms. Your transmission will go out. Cancer may be in our future. Your job's not going to work out. You're not going to have enough money. Storms are a thing. Jesus says to you, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. me. Remember, this faith thing is more about me than it is about you. (laughs) No, you can't walk on top of the water, but it's more about me. I can't. I don't know where we're going to be in six months. I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I don't know. I don't, I, look at me. Look at me. Simon Peter may not get it now, and he may not get it in a couple of chapters. He may not even get it in, in several chapters, but he eventually gets it. He eventually gets it. He gets that it's all about relationship with Christ, and eventually, he does become a tangible expression of the body of Christ. Some of you are trying to be Christian without looking at Jesus. Here's what happens when you try to be Christian without keeping your eyes fixed on this Jesus. Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, the finisher, the one who complete the project that is you. Here's what happens. Not only do you fall short, but you don't find your voice. And when you don't find your voice, bad things happen in Charlottesville, Virginia. John, how do I find my voice? Well, uh, Scripture is a really good thing. And if you haven't yet taken a disciple class, folks, please don't, people that say, don't be the people who say, ah, I just don't have that kind of time to read the Bible. I just don't. If you haven't yet considered taking a very long and very work-heavy disciple class, but a very deep dive into Scripture... You should really consider a disciple. I mean, there's a friendship folder there. We would like to build that class. Is this an advertisement? Absolutely, stinking lutely it is. You need to read the Bible. You need to learn to pray. You need to come to the table with your eyes and ears open. You need to be in small groups in Sunday school classes. You really need to serve. And in all of these sorts of ways, in all of these sorts of ways, you're keeping your eyes on Jesus obedient to Christ's call when Christ says, look at me, look at me, look at me. And what happens, sometimes without your knowing it, you move to this place where you wake up and there, for sure, your heart pounds when Christ's heart pounds. You see as Christ sees, and you speak up and you speak out, and you find it's not your voice, it's Christ's voice in you. And the world is better. It's more crucial than you know to listen as Christ says to you, look at me. One of the ways we do that is by gathering at the table each week. If you're helping us, if you will come and set this table that allows us to get a good look week in and week out. Heavenly Father, bless these elements. These elements that will be taken, blessed, broken, and given. These elements, Lord, that give us the capacity to sense and see and hear you. Bless these elements, God. And with them, move us toward Christ-likeness. Move us toward that place where we can finally recover the image with which we were created, in whose image we were created. May today's meal move us closer to that point where we are actually able to find our collected voice, our gathered up voice, but also our individual voices. Help us to see clearly that finding our voices means more than posting on social media. It means actually living, putting skin and flesh on a better idea. May we live faithfully, empowered, and equipped as we will be by the bread and the cup. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet. We have visitors today, so follow along here. This is, there's a few steps to this. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet, exit your pew to your left, then come forward with your hands cupped, ready to receive this gift of grace. Approach someone with bread. That person will snap off a piece of bread and place it into your hands and say at that very same time, this is the body of Christ broken for you. But don't eat it just yet. Dip it into the cup. That person, when you do, that person holding the cup will say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat and church then please find a place to pray. Now you can circle all the way back around and sit right where you're sitting right now and you can pray and I'm pretty sure God will still hear you even if you pray right there at your pew. But if you come up here to one of these side padded altars, someone will meet you there and pray a prayer for healing. We'll know that you're there for a prayer for healing at one of these two side altars and someone will anoint you with oil, anoint you with oil and pray that prayer for healing. Physical, physical, Mental, emotional, relational, perhaps theological. I see the need for that. Repair how I understand God. Or you can come to one of these mourner's benches is what they are traditionally called. We won't assume a thing, but we will come to your side and pray with you. Somebody at some point will touch you on the back of the head, the neck, the shoulder, just so you know, just so you know that you're not alone in the storm. There's also a bowl of water here. It's still right now. But if you'll come and just sort of dip your fingers into this bowl, it's meant to jog your memory, to remind you of the moment of your baptism when you were in a very official sort of way welcomed into the people with a calling, the people of mission, initiated into God's movement, God's tangible presence in the world. And maybe you need to be reminded these days that you are a part of that movement, well, here's a good place to be reminded. Just dip your fingers here. If you can't come to us, Caleb and Kristen will come to you. Who is welcome at this table? John, you don't know what I've done. I don't. I don't necessarily need to know. As long as I know that you understand your need for grace, this is a perfect place for you. If you're guilty of the sin of silence when you should be loud, or loudness when you should be silent. You are welcome at this table. If you have been overtly or covertly complicit and recognize your need for grace, welcome. Join the crowd. You're welcome. It was on the night he was betrayed that our Savior took bread, blessed it, he broke it gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat of it, remember me. Later on after dinner, he took the cup. He held it up before them and said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant shed for you. And every time you drink of it, remember me. And as you remember today, know that maybe without your knowledge, God is moving you to this place where you might find his voice. I dare you to come today, knowing that God is doing something in you, with you, with us, for the world. And now, if you would stand to your feet, exit your pews to the left, and come forward with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of God meant for the people of God. So pray a few words of confession before turning it over to Brittany for prayers of petition. And then finally to Lisa, I believe. Is that right, Lisa, for prayers of our children? Heavenly Father, we confess. We have, in fact, over the years, been unwittingly complicit when we haven't spoken up. We confess, Lord, that we have it within us to be silent when we should be loud and loud when we should be silent. In other words, Lord, we are confessing to this, that we haven't always kept our eyes fixed on you. We haven't kept our eyes focused focused on this Jesus we have we have allowed the waves and the winds to intimidate and maybe intoxicate us we confess Lord that we need to fix our eyes on you we understand that if we give ourselves to you you can do something in us and with us and through us that is good not only for us but good for all of creation. Father, I'm so grateful for those in the room who have this deep, ravishing appetite for you. They want you. Continue to stoke those flames. I pray also for those who wish they did want you like that, for those who want to want you. you would stoke those flames as well. And I pray for those, Lord, who don't feel a thing. (laughs) I pray for those who perhaps, for whatever reason, can't see you at all, much less focus on you. I would ask in this moment that you would do something that only you can do. Get to them. We saw Jesus get to the disciples in their distress. Get to these people. Get to them somehow, some way. And may they know it when it happens that you will have gotten to them. And then grant us just enough grace to respond. And now hear us, God, as we pray for one another.
1: know someone who is in need of healing emotional,
2: relational
1: or physical. We take a moment to lift that person up to the Lord in prayer. Won't you join me in praying for the Smith family? Pastor Jason's on sabbatical. He's looking for a fresh pouring out of the Holy Spirit so that he can come back to us rejuvenated, excited for ministry in this community once again. We lift up a few among us who are hurting or recovering from surgery? We think of Walt Crow, Jim Smith, LaDonna Bennett, Debbie McKenzie, take a moment now if there's anything in your life that you know you need the grace of God and pray for healing.
3: Join me by looking up on the screen. These are the prayers that our kids have prayed or some of them uh, over this last month. Now join me in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for our children. I thank you for the gift of who they are and how they teach us, Lord, to have childlike faith. May you help us to trust you and to be led by your spirit as we keep our eyes focused on you. And now, Lord, may we pray as you have taught your disciples to pray, using debt and debtors. Our Father, who art in heaven,